0: Hey, it's Brian here. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Go Be More podcast. At Go Be More, our mission is simple. We want you to chase your dreams. So how does a clothing company help people chase their dreams? Well, I'm glad you asked. The clothes we wear are like every other part of our physical environment. They not only represent us, they reinforce who we are and who we're committed to being. When you wear a Go Be More shirt, you're wearing your personal commitment to Go Be More, to chase your dreams. And what better way to show someone you support them than to give them a physical symbol of your belief in them? We want the words Go Be More to remind you of your dreams every time you see them. As for this podcast, this is our chance to explore what it means to Go Be More with the people who inspire us and to share those stories and strategies with you. We have a couple of announcements. First, our new store just launched with all new gear, including athletic wear, zip hoodies, long sleeve shirts, new caps, even a backpack. And because we're working with a new supplier, we're able to offer everything at much lower prices. So head over to gobemore.co and check it out. Now, for the holidays, John and I decided to pick a few of our early episodes and replay them. This conversation with Tony Reid covered everything from Martin Luther King to Antarctic penguins to why it's best to run small marathons. But more than anything, it reminded me that what we do outside of work can empower us to do our best work. And, his book, From the Road Race to the Rat Race, is out now, so you can get that link in the show notes. We hope you enjoy this conversation. We'll be back with some exciting new announcements in the new year. And now, here's Tony Reed. All right, Tony Reed, welcome to the Go Be More podcast.
1: Thank you very much. It's great to be here.
0: Tony,
2: it's, it's so good to see you, brother. I'm so excited to dive into your story. Thank you from our entire team. Uh, for joining us today.
1: Thank you. It's great to see you again.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, we just, we just connected on the UCAN, uh, uh, race and representation panel, uh, with Alisa Harvey, who was kind enough to also recently, uh, join us on the Go Be More podcast. And, uh, first of all, it was just wonderful and an honor to be on the panel with both of you. But the, uh, but I got to tell you, uh, Alisa Harvey is, a legend, and yes. I, the more research I did on her, uh, and I feel like I only skimmed the surface. Holy cannoli, that woman is truly—I believe—one of the greatest. I think middle distance and distance runners, p- period. Not just male or female, uh, but pe- hands down uh, in, in American history. She, that woman, and she's still going. Wow.
1: Yes, and in fact, it's funny, I was in the coaching workshop, and they were talking about you know, fast twitch and slow twitch muscles, and then they were saying that there's this, this kind of middle twitch that you can convert from fast to slow and all this, and they said, you know, a person really can't be good in both, you know, the shorter distances and the marathons, and I started talking about Elisa Harvey,
3: yep. and was like, ah. well,
1: you know, uh, well, they, there are people that, that are exceptions to, to that rule. And as I was telling them about her background, they were kind of going, okay, we need to move on to another subject.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you're ruining our point, Tony. <laughs> well, you know, and we know that that's, if you're really educated about the sport, you know that, that, you're, that she is a phenomenal example, but I, I, I've run a 234 marathon, not super fast, but I've run 234. I've split a 46 second quarter mile, quarter mile. And I've, and I've run everything in between, you know, uh, obviously my specialty was the mile running at 352 on the road, 354, uh, on the track, three minutes and 54 seconds on the track. Uh, but I mean, I, I, I did have that range as well. And it was kind of like initially a little bit of a, an enigma. Cause they're like, wait a minute. What is this guy supposed to be really good at? Cause he's doing stuff that a quarter miler would never consider being able to run at two and a half. Uh, our marathon and it, and, and vice versa, you know, like a t- 46 second split in the quarter mile. That doesn't make sense. But yeah, you're right. No, there, it is possible. It's definitely possible. And I think I'd probably fall s- similarly in the, in, to the same category. I think Elisa yeah. Harvey, again, she's a legend. I'm not in the <laughs> same breath as her, but yeah, I think I, I kind of had those similar experiences where, where there doesn't always a limitation that the people think there is, you know, there are exceptions. And I think if we expanded our minds, We'd probably see more of those exceptions you
0: know well you know yeah. maybe the term we use fast twitch and slow twitch, is the problem we we should have used uh the distances it should have been a, a sprinter a sprinting twitch a, a, di- a long distance twitch and a middle distance twitch because yeah. realistically like that i think what you have don <laughs> is you have you have a mix of both right you have the 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 ability to do both of them and that it makes total sense that 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 ability exists, but when you talk about things as if there's a duality of them, like, you know, well, you either have fast twitch or, twitch or slow twitch, it sets you up to think that way and to just not even look in the middle. Well, I mean, just look at Iliad
2: kotogi I'm sorry, but that dude, his range <laughs> is is as crazy as it'll ever get. I mean, sub two hours. I mean, I already know that that guy's, I don't know what his quarter mile speed is, but I mean, we've seen him do stuff where I think I was looking at one of his, uh that legendary 5K against Bekele and, and, and El Garouge, where he was like, 18 or 19 years old. And I think they said, I got to double check, so cr- I apologize if I'm incorrect, but I believe when I was watching one of the um analysis of that race, I think their last mile in a 5K was a 353 or something like that. So <laughs> wow. I'm sorry, but like, there's definitely... <laughs> There's, some, there's definitely a lot more to unpack in terms of like yeah. range when it comes to speed and distance running. So,
0: Well, John, mm-hmm. um, we have started off on a totally different topic because we invited Tony over here <laughs> to talk about his life. And now sometimes we're talking yeah. about fast twitch muscles. Uh, but so... <laughs>
1: well, 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 the thing that I was going to add to that is, is that then you have people like me who yeah. have a fast twitch muscle but a slow twitch mind. So I kind of I mean, I basically have a, the build of a sprinter and the mentality of a distance runner. And yeah, I mean, interesting. Really match, yeah. I, I, love, I love distance running more than I do sprints.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, Tony, can you tell us, how did you get started in running? Were you a sprinter when you were younger?
1: Well, uh, I went to a high school where it was mandatory that you participate in a sport two out of the three seasons. And, uh, mm. in fact, my freshman year, you had to participate in a sport all three seasons. So uh, everyone was looking for me to go out to football, and instead I went to cross-country. And, by the way, this was uh, at an elite private high school in St. Louis.
3: Okay, and St. Louis, Missouri. Back,
1: yeah, so this is back in uh, 1969. Uh, the high schools in the suburbs were looking at trying to integrate, so they ended up offering scholarships to inner-city schools inner city kids so okay. I don't know wow. if you remember the uh, Michael Jackson video bad at the very mm-hmm. beginning of what they show yeah. him in elite high school and he's taking a, the light rail and everything to bus into the inner city that literally was my life for four years
0: wow really so and, you, were living uh, in the, yeah. you were living outside the city and busing into the city to go to the school
1: oh, no I was living a in b- opposite. Louis, St. Louis inner city and yeah, I was right, right, right. out to uh, Ladue Missouri
0: Okay. And
1: uh, so I ended up running cross country simply because I didn't want to play football. And the expectation was because I'm black, I should play football. Instead, I said, I'm going to run cross country. (laughs) Um, I ran cross country, but uh, I ran into a slight problem. And that uh, when the kids would go out and they would go for runs, they would run on the golf course, the private country club.
3: Mm-hmm. And
1: I knew as soon as I set foot on there, if people couldn't identify the other fifteen or twenty runners they were there, that were there, they knew that there was that one black guy. So I knew oh. I was gonna stand out. Yeah. And, and because of that, I literally quit cross country because I knew I was gonna be the one that would get singled out and caught and have all the different problems going on.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. And what, uh, what was the response of the coaches and in the, in the school at that time? I mean, was this something that you even felt you could talk about with them?
1: Uh, no, I, I couldn't talk with them about it.
0: Right, uh, right, yeah. You know, so. can, I, can I ask, or just in general, uh, about roughly, I'm just curious, how big was the school and, and how many black students were there that were integrating with you?
1: Okay, so the school, it was John Burroughs School, and it went from the 7th grade uh, through the 12th there were about 400 students in the school and there were seven blacks in my freshman year. Okay. So it was, I was definitely in the minority. Yeah, and, and I was the only one who was there whose parent wasn't a doctor or an attorney or someone like that. So my mother well, well, was a divorce secretary. Okay.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And so you were growing up inner city St. Louis and, and how, and, and this school was somewhere out in the suburbs outside of the, outside of the city.
1: Yeah, so I was taking a bus to get to school every day, taking a public transportation wow. or trying to get rides to go there.
0: Was that and, a – how did you feel at the time about that decision? Did you want to go to that school because of the opportunities it might open for you, or were you really resistant to it as a, as a youth?
1: Uh, I was open to it because uh, Martin Luther King Jr. said it's not burn, baby, burn, but it's learn, baby, learn.
0: Mm,
3: so, yeah.
1: I was focused on getting a good education. I have a brother who's a year older, and mm-hmm. he went to he went to my rival high school. Ah, <laughs> so oh really? Also, yes, he went to a school called St. Louis Country Day. So that was okay. also that was also again out in the suburbs, and um, yeah. So I, you know, as long as he was there, I knew that knew that I, I had to stay at Burles. I had to graduate. I didn't want to be mm-hmm. known as a kid who went there and couldn't make it. So I ended up putting a lot of pressure on myself. I worked after school every day as a janitor um, wow. for all four years. I uh, worked at a barbecue restaurant, waiting tables on Friday nights, all day Saturdays, and sometimes on Sundays. And what? I had zero social life.
0: And, and so your brother's at a different school at the, around the same yeah. time?
1: Mm. Yes. Yeah. He was going through the same experience.
0: That's uh, It's unfortunate you weren't able to do it at the same school, though. Uh, I mean, it seems like if you had been at the same school, maybe you could have, I don't know, supported well, each other in that process. but.
1: Well, I didn't want to go to his school. Country Day was, a, was an all-boys school, oh. and I wanted, ah. to to
0: school.
1: I wanted to go to a co-ed school, and at his school, they have to wear a <laughs> uh, court coats and ties. At mine, yeah. you wear, at mine, you can wear blue jeans and T-shirts. Wow. So, Interesting.
2: Wow. That's funny that you were able to just think about, uh, about, about it from that standpoint. Like you, you were able to kind of like express that that's what you desired. That's what you wanted as far as your experience. And you're like, ah, I'm not, I'm not willing to accept that as, uh, (laughs) that's not the option I want to take. I'd rather take this other option and stuff. So, and your parents were, as far as like, um, well, I mean, a couple of things as far as like the challenge of going to different schools, they, they were, they, they were fine with that you know, they didn't, they didn't have any issue with that or was there a little bit of an issue with having you guys go to different schools and trying to manage that? Because so, obviously you're going, you're both going through this battle of, 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 of being I- integrated into these schools and, and, and desegregating them. Right. So that's a lot to deal with, with, with this one school. Now you got to deal with it with two kids at two different schools, you know?
1: Well, it, it was really up to me. Um, okay. I had to take an entrance exam to get into both schools
2: Mm -hmm.
3: and
1: if you don't want to go someplace you just don't pass the test (laughs) (laughs) man
2: you're so smart man that's hilarious
0: (laughs) i would not have thought of that (laughs) so tony how Um, about then uh, you were were you experiencing uh i mean you said this is 1969 so i am assuming that you're experiencing some pretty direct racism Within the school with it, from the other students from within maybe even within the staff. I mean was that the case?
1: Uh, yes, oh. and uh, it was it was something that again my, my focus on being there was to get an education and So I had to kind of suppress a lot of feelings uh, You know back then for example if you looked at athletic role models, you were looking at people like Arthur Ashe
3: Willie uh,
1: uh-huh. Billy Mays, uh Althea Gibson. So you're looking at all these blacks who were kind of the first ones in in their particular area who made it to the elite level. And they basically had to um, kind of bite their tongue, so to speak. You know, mm-hmm. they, they couldn't yeah. be vocal. They couldn't um, do a lot of things they were trailblazers and they wanted to open the doors for other people to follow them. And so Can- that's essentially what I ended up doing.
0: Can I ask you, because um, it just struck me, you know, this is the, around the same time. This is around the time that Martin Luther King was assassinated. This is uh, Bobby Kennedy's assassinated. The 60s were a time of a lot of turmoil, culturally, and um, protests and, and everything. I mean, everybody now compares sort of what we see today to that time. Do, wh- what do you remember from the, the the larger culture there? And what were you taking from it? You mentioned Martin Luther King once already. Were you Mm-hmm. was he was he like a presence in your daily life when when he was speaking in alive
1: yes he was in fact uh, you you can almost draw a line from martin luther king's speech i have a dream mm-hmm. all the way to me uh having my running clothes in the uh african-american museum in washington d.c mm-hmm. uh the night that martin luther king jr was assassinated uh my mother had convinced the principal at Soldan High School to let my brother and I go along with her on the senior tour. So she was the secretary at Soldan High School, which is the all-black high school in St. Louis. Mm. Uh, the night before the trip, we were in a downtown department store in St. Louis and saw a bunch of people standing around the television display, and we walked over there and found out Martin Luther King Jr. had been assassinated that evening. And that very next morning, we boarded a, I think we were on at least one bus, possibly two buses, headed to Washington, D.C. Which, uh, by the time we got there, there was rioting going going, going on all over the place. And we couldn't even go out to eat that night we pulled in because there was a curfew. Uh, While we were there, we got an opportunity to tour different areas in Washington, D.C., especially in the mall area. But what mm-hmm. really struck me was we had passes to get into the Capitol. And when we all walked up there with our passes, the guard stopped us and said, sorry, we can't let you in. And we said, oh. why? He says, well, we're not letting black groups tour the Capitol. So we literally had to step
3: oh step, wow,
1: step aside and let white tour groups go in, and they refused to let us in. And I still have that, have that tour pass, by the way. You do, uh, yeah. So, oh, so wow. when that happened, we ended up spending time in the Smithsonian museums, and then I was uh, eighth grader. I uh, was a huge history buff, so I really loved, loved spending the time in the museums. And I came away from that with the impression that I said, you know, one day, I would love to do something where I would end up in the Smithsonian Museum.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> um, Almost 20 years later, I was there, there with my family, and we were at the uh, Space Museum, like Space and Air Museum, mm-hmm. and um, they had the star exhibit of things that were shaped like stars. So they had, like, Lucky Charm cereals and <laughs> okay. all these things, but they also had something from one of my favorite musicians. They had a pair of star-shaped sunglasses, which are worn by Bootsy Collins from Parliament Funkadelic.
3: <laughs> Whoa, what? And I
1: sat there and I said, if Bootsy Collins can have his, his glasses in the air and space museum, there's no reason in the world why I can't do something and to end up in the Smithsonian museum. Right. So uh, when I became the first black in the world to run marathons on all seven continents in 2007, uh, I packed up all the different artifacts and things from the trip, and then I believe it was in 2012, the African-American Museum reached out to me because they were looking for artifacts from individuals who had uh, made world history. Mm-hmm. So I ended up sending my running singlet, race number, a number of things from my seventh continent in Africa to the African-American Museum in Washington, DC. So that was in 2012 and tied everything back to the evening, Martin Luther King Jr. was fascinating.
0: That is amazing. <laughs> no way. The wow. other thing that stands out to me is that you ran your seventh marathon in Africa. That means you ran in Antarctica before you ran in Africa? <laughs> yes.
3: <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. yes. <laughs> okay, this is going to be a quick aside. What is it like to run a marathon in Antarctica? Cold. <laughs> was, that was fast <laughs> it,
1: it, it was truly an adventure uh, when i went down and we sailed down there and one of the things they told us is that there were more people in a walt disney theme park in one day than had ever set foot on Antarctica, wow. and so that made it really really special for me and i just loved i would love to go back down there again yeah so unlike a lot of individuals who go down there to run uh nowadays they'll like fly down there run a marathon and you know maybe spend a night and fly back uh we spent about eight to ten days sailing around in getting out exploring it and really got an opportunity to see you know what the continent was like
2: that's really cool um... well but just because it's interesting i mean most people unfortunately w- w- won't ever get to do that um what stood out to you about being down there? Because, I mean, in, in, in all of our minds, it's almost just like we just think of vast, a vast, cold emptiness, you know? I mean, did you? was it beautiful? Was, what, what, did you see a lot of different type of... What animals did you see? Did you see wildlife oh. down there? What stood out for
1: you? Oh, yes. I uh, saw thousands of penguins. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Oh, that's cool. Chin, what chin-strap, Pigeons, sorry, penguins, uh, Gen 2 penguins, uh, humpback whales. There's nothing more thrilling than sitting in a Zodiac boat, which is like a large inflatable raft, and (laughs) seeing and having two 65 ton humpback whales swimming within 25 yards of you. (sighs) And I remember afterwards, someone said, Well, well, you know, well, what do you think was going to happen if one of the whales tipped over your, your boat? I said, you would have seen 10 people in the water holding up their cameras, trying to get a picture of the whale while it was swimming around them.
3: <laughs> yeah.
1: So it was a really group of people. Uh, being around the penguins <laughs> was, was also uh, a very interesting experience because people would see, you know, the penguins on television. Oh, you know, they're cute and everything. But when you're in their environment, you smell them. Mm. About oh. a couple of hundred yards before you get to them, because imagine a bunch of birds standing in one place and it's so cold yeah. their poop is not decomposing.
0: Oh, so wow! It's so it... a
1: <laughs> horrible odor. And but once you're once you're there, you kind of get used to it. Sure. Uh, when I um, uh, before I left Antarctica, I put the my outerwear I was wearing in a plastic bag and zipped it up. And didn't think anything of it. When I came back to the States, I remember my girlfriend was in the living room, I was in a bedroom and I unpacked and I un unzipped this bag <laughs> that had my outerwear in it and the smell was so strong she got hit with it all the way in the living room. Oh my god. <laughs> and I just got used to the smell. Oh
0: wow. no, that is so bad. That's terrible. Well, Tony, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm going to bring us back a little bit. Sorry. We're going to talk about some of these experiences. This is, we, this is fantastic. But yeah. Well, wow. I want to go well, back real quick. Well, you...
1: I, I can wrap this up. By the way, this actually yeah. ties into high school and track. Okay. Yeah. So uh, the sport I ended up uh, participating in in the winter was soccer. So back then in St. Louis, soccer was played in the winter time, and it got so cold and there was so much snow on the ground that they marked this soccer field off using crutch shark charcoal because of course white you couldn't see white chalk mm-hmm. so when i was running in antarctica i kept thinking about running in the cold winters in st louis playing soccer and sub freezing temperatures wearing nothing but shorts wow uh, for the first couple of years i played baseball in the spring but baseball became stressful okay. uh because I was what I would call economically challenged. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had to decide between buying a baseball bat, a baseball glove, and the shoes. So uh, I ended up buying the bat and the glove. And if you look at my high school pictures of me playing baseball, I was wearing Converse low-top shoes.
3: Really? White shoes oh, and my gosh. Shoes.
1: Yeah. And I can tell you right now, there's nothing more stressful than getting up to bat. And you're concerned about your bat breaking because you didn't have the money to buy a second bat oh, i mean i didn't really yeah. could not pay yeah. a second bat so therefore i switched to track just because i couldn't afford to have a broken baseball bat isn't that, that funny
2: is, i mean that's yeah. that's that's a real thing you know and a lot of people uh, ac you don't hear it all the time but that's to have to make that consideration and that determines like what sport you're going to play, you know, I mean, thank goodness for running, but, um, (laughs) that's crazy. You know, I mean, running is probably the, 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 the only sport where you literally don't need anything. You don't need a pool. You don't need a place to go. I mean, you could do it anywhere with, uh, you don't even need shoes. I mean, crazy enough. You know, you could do it barefoot if you had to. And a lot of runners that are great runners in the world from different parts of the world, less lesser, lesser developed countries, do it. So, but man, yeah, I, I, that's that's pretty crazy. I mean, did you love baseball? So, was it hard to have to choose to switch? Oh, you,
1: you cannot live in St. Louis and not love baseball. Exactly. I'm People thinking Bob Gibson,
0: it. Stan Musial. These are cl- yeah. like. Legends from from that time, and Bob Gibson must have been pitching around that time.
1: Oh yes, yes, yeah. In fact, the barbecue restaurant I worked at, we provided ribs to the St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, oh, to the man, that's cool. So when the home game <laughs> games were open, they would come into the they would come into their locker room, and they had ribs that we had prepared for them. So yeah. for four years, I was also getting free baseball tickets.
2: Oh, nice. <laughs> well, that's awesome.
1: <laughs> that's
0: cool.
2: Oh man. So, uh,
1: Now, something odd happened also as a result of going to the high school. So when I was eight years old, I was diagnosed with a pre-diabetic condition, and the doctor said I would go on insulin by the time I was a teenager. Uh, As a result of going to the high school, I ended up losing weight and did not have to go on insulin. But at the time, we did not know there was a connection between being overweight and being diabetic. Mm. Uh, The next year in college, I read a book by Dr. Kenneth Cooper, where he stated diabetics who are dependent on insulin could either decrease their insulin intake or go completely off of it if they maintain a fitness program. So uh, I set a lifetime goal of averaging three miles a day of running, walking, or crawling as a way Mm -hmm. to avoid taking insulin. So I've kept a handwritten running journal since 1979. Uh, As of the end of last year, I had run over 45,000 miles, averaged three miles a day I'm 65, and I'm still not on insulin.
0: That is phenomenal. We, um, so one of our first interview, actually, our first interview was with uh, a man named Michael Lemos, who is a, is a dear friend of our family uh, and, and my family growing up. And he, um, loosely, one of the stories he tells was he was uh, getting heavy and getting a little bit overweight. And he went to the doctor, and the doctor said, hey, you need to start doing something because you're... You're, you're, you become diabetic in your, in your current state. And he started exercising, got really serious about it. And within, I, th- I think he, I can't remember exactly, maybe 10 months, he got all of his levels back to normal and, and when was, was completely solved it via exercise. And, uh, it's a remarkable story and it's, it's remarkable that you've been able to maintain it for that long. I, I, I'm, Every time I hear about a journal that's gone from since 1979, that is that is amazing to me that you've had the discipline to stick with it and, and yet to document it and to to really like own this, this uh, at that younger age, you made the decision like, I'm going to do this and stick with it. And, and you really have.
1: If it, well, and, and, it, it doesn't crash, by the way. It, um, yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah. right. <laughs> Can I I ask you a question about the, 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 uh, the journal that you've kept for so long? Um, did you, aside from tracking the mileage, did you put anything else in that journal, like, uh, thoughts or feelings or anything, stories, uh, you did now has, has a lot of that been, uh, transferred uh, into the, the, the books that you've written?
1: Yes, in fact, uh, I wrote the book. Running shoes are cheaper than insulin. Marathon adventures on all seven continents. Mm-hmm. And, um, that's so, how yeah, I so found. Well, out. That's how I discovered
2: yeah. you, by the way, Tony. So many. I, I remember. I can't believe you even let me give you a call. It was so. It was quite a few years ago. But that's how I found out about you. How I discovered your story as a young African American, um, and, and, and and wanting to learn more about, you know, how big distance running was or wasn't uh, in the in the black community in America and I found your story and I thought it was, I was just, I mean, still to this day, uh, in awe of you and and, and the life that you've lived, uh, lived thus far. And, uh, but that book, I am so, thank you so much for writing that book because it was a very inspirational discovery for me, um, as a young African-American. So anyways, please continue. I just wanted to tell you that.
1: So, um, so yeah, I've, you know, I've used a journal to track a lot of things that have gone on in my life, uh, birth of children, uh, even things, even today, things such as the, the pandemic that we're going through.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: it is a history of my life, you know, dating as far back as 1979.
0: Wow. Yeah. So, from. From your time in school, you started doing track and field. You made a comment in the very beginning that you're, you're, you have a sprinter's body but a distance runner's mind. And <laughs> yeah. um, What were you doing in track and field at, at that time? Were you, were you doing distances or were you doing sprints?
1: Well, my, my coach and I were, were fighting. Uh, he okay. wanted me to do the 100 and 200, uh, but I, I hated staying in my lane. So uh, we ended up reaching a compromise where I would run the quarter and a half. Uh, there was no way in the world I was going to be fast enough to run the mile uh, I ran a quarter for my coach and I ran a half for me I love not running in my lane I loved the, uh, the, the mind games that, that you can play play with other runners mm-hmm. uh, and you, you just can't do that in the sprint mm-hmm. but at, at a distance event you can talk to your competitors, you can crawl up inside their heads, stir it up and just truly <laughs> mess with them
2: you sound, you sound like He's, he a similar mindset competitively speaking as as a Michael Jordan i mean that was like that was like uh, his game man he was just like i am going to mess with your your mind same thing with Arnold Schwarzenegger you know he, he, he they talk about that so true i think the true 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 competitors boy ooh they like to just get after their their, their, <laughs> their the those that they – well that specific advantage that's very unique I, in my opinion, because not everybody has the, I don't know, like the, I, I, it's, I don't know if it's like the courage or the attitude or the guts to be like, I'm going to compete with you. Not just compete, but I'm going to compete with you and I'm going to get after you and I'm going to try to get under your skin because you never know. Somebody fights back with you, returns the favor, that raises a lot of different challenges that you then have to uh, embrace and a lot of people avoid that so... Would you consider yourself a super competitive person, just generally speaking? Because I don't, that's, that's, I think, a very unique quality that not every athlete has, in, in, my, in, in my experience.
1: Uh, yes, I, I consider myself very competitive.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh,
1: but when people see me, they see someone who's very laid back, calm, soft-spoken, yeah. yeah. But, you know, you put me in, in a competitive situation, and I will try my best. Uh, the other big thing about St. Louis, St. Louis was a major baseball town. It was also a major bowling town. In fact, the uh, Bowling Hall of Fame is in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And from, I guess, about nine years old all the way through high school, my true love was to be a professional bowler. And I, in really? fact, made it to the finals of the St. Louis City's youth bowling tournament. Uh, so, and That's that was so cool. Extremely mental sport you know yep. you have to yeah. be able to uh you know stand there your first ball you're focused on getting a strike uh the second ball you know you're focused on getting that spare and in fact i truly developed myself mentally from bowling because it was one Oof. person in bowling i could never beat and that was my father and then really one day i came to that what? realization is that it doesn't matter who i'm competing with my objective in bowling is always the same: strike on the first ball, spare on the second. So no matter <laughs> what the person said, it was never ever going to impact what my objective was. And my father used to love to try to talk smack.
2: <laughs> oh, well, that's where you got it from, then. <laughs> <And,
1: man. laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah and, that's and, awesome. And once I learned to control it and to focus on, you know, what my objective is, I beat him. That's and, that's
0: uh, fantastic. Never, that reminds me of a similar story. My dad was uh, loved games, sports, anything that we could do. Like if it was a competitive thing, he not only wanted to play, but he wanted to play for money. And he would play at money that was just high enough for me that it was like stakes for me and didn't matter for him, right? So it was sort of like a, you know twenty five cents a game or something like that, right? And we would. And, and in my mind, I'm like, I don't have a lot of money. Twenty five cents. I, I gotta focus. I gotta I gotta win. I can't afford to lose this twenty five cents. Yeah. And For him, whatever. It was just a chance to give me money if I beat him. <laughs> But he would mess with me, and it took time to realize. Like it's, it's not like, often the, the, his psychological messing with me. He would ask me questions like if, in basketball. You know, uh, do you breathe in or out when you let go of the ball? And try to get me thinking about something completely other than <laughs> shooting the basketball, right? And and and, yeah. and try to m- mess me up, right? And the same kind of thing. And then um, it took a long time, but eventually, it realized it's like actually, it's as he has nothing to do with me shooting this this free throw or he has nothing to do with me playing this game. And once you get, you get over that in my anyway. Yeah. I resonate with that story a lot because that, that is an advantage that my dad used over me for quite a while as well. <laughs> well, we all, we all have that in
2: common. My dad in many, many, many ways cause he raised my brother and I on basketball. So I didn't become a, a runner, uh, a, a, like a real just exclusive runner until like I was, uh, uh, 15. And so uh, I, I the dream of becoming an Olympian was was right around when I was 14, but I didn't really get into the sport of track and field and running until I was 15. And um, when we played basketball, though, I mean, we were small. I mean, my dad had us, you know, put the basketball in our hands and we were like four or five years old. And so we were playing from from right around where we could really run and, and move around and do stuff. And um, I, I remember my dad, he would just, he kind of didn't hold back. You know, we just swap the ball and you try to shoot the thing. And say, "Well, I mean, there's gonna be bigger guys, so you're gonna have to deal with this anyway. See, so might as well deal with it now, kind of thing." And uh, we'd play, um, try to get like ten in a row at the free throw line, or we'd play horse. And my dad went at us, man. He did not hold back, and he would be doing these crazy through the leg thing. And we're just like, "I can't even get the ball through my legs while I'm jumping." What? You... No, of course I'm gonna get a letter, you know. Yeah, and, then... and 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 it made us tough because when we got older. And we got a little bit, little bit better, more athletic. Then we started doing stuff. My dad, even my dad couldn't do. And he's just like, see, you know, he brought it out of us, but he enjoyed kicking our butt. We <laughs> can tell he enjoyed it going home being like, yeah, I got that. Those, I get those extra pancakes today, you know, cause he <laughs> yeah. won the bet or whatever it was. It was on the line, you know, so, uh, I definitely feel like dads, dads do that for their kids, which is kind of a, I think it's a good thing. You got to kind of be pushed yeah. and. It's, it's this kind of love that you know you know it's coming out of love, but it does make us better, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, it, it, it is to me. The, the, They're they the ones who start this whole thing about mind games. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I yep. remember my, my, my most memorable high school track meet uh, was in districts. My brother was a junior, so I must have been a... No, my brother was a senior, so I was a junior. And I was in a two-mile relay. I was a third leg. And we're all lined up at the beginning of the race. And so naturally, you know, you're kind of talking to the person that you may be running against. Mm-hmm, so I'm yep. talking to the guy from my brother's school. And he looks at me and goes, so, you know, what's, so, what, what's your fastest time and a half? And I said, oh, this really isn't my, you know, this, this truly is, is not my distance. My coach talked me into doing this. And I said somewhere around like 2.15 or 2.20. He goes, oh, that's a relief. You know, my, my fastest time is 2.10. Well, my fastest time was really under well under two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> oh And we, oh. Just so happened, <laughs> we just so happened to have gotten a hand off at the exact same time. And my brother is in a stands by now because he finishes it and she's watching this. And I let the guy just kind of take take it through the first turn. And then I noticed he starts looking over his right shoulder at me because I'm just kind of, you know, kicking back, enjoying myself, hanging right behind him. Every time he turned around to look over his shoulder, he moved over just a little bit. So I said, "Okay, at the top of the second key, top of the second turn, he's going to look over his shoulder and I'll just move by on the inside and just take the lead. Yeah. And I blew the guy out. My brother afterwards came up to me and said, why in the world did you do that to me? you know you just should have been messing with them like, <laughs> no. hey, it's, it's all in the day's work and the thing about my dad, was, the thing about my dad when, when he talks smack it wasn't loud it was just nice soft and, yeah you know, it wasn't loud but it would still mess with your hair
0: yeah yeah that's that's the worst I, love thing, right? <laughs> I love it
2: right oh my gosh uh, Tony, I, I was going to, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about, um, because I, I want to make sure that we touch on this. You know, I I think that the, um, you've had some amazing experiences as a runner and you've been doing so much with running. Um, and we're going to talk about the, you know, obviously the founding of the National Black Marathoners Association, but um, with your running career, what, 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 what have you taken from? being a runner you know especially you know post high school and and the you know um like even over the last you know you know uh 15 20 years or so like what has running really done for you like what have you taken out of it um uh, as far as lessons learned and, and also what has it helped you to learn about your yourself
1: um God, that's a good question um and I'll kind of go, go back to something I learned in college. Uh-huh. Uh, and that is that when I was in college, when I first started off, uh, I was kind of going through what I would call a stovepipe education. And that is, you know, uh, I would take a math class, economics and physics, and uh, I was passing math, but I was flunking economics and physics. What I didn't realize was if I stepped back and looked at the big picture, I can find commonalities between all three of those.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: And so once I realized I could take what I learned in math and apply it to physics, economics, and all these other areas, I was able to pass all these classes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Same thing with, with running. As I started stepping back and looking at it, I realized that I could apply the things that I learned in running to managing businesses and to managing staff. And uh, when I stepped back and realized and looked at it, I realized that in every single company that I worked at from 1978 all the way through the time I retired from corporate America in 2007, I was either the highest ranking black in the entire company or the highest ranking black in the IT department. And usually I was the first manager or executive in the IT department, if not in the entire company. Uh, I had to borrow a lot from the strategies and from the endurance learn and distance running mm-hmm. uh, in order to manage my staff. Uh, I was talking with one of my staff members, and he said, and this is after I had left the company, he said, you know, I just don't understand what's going on. I'm doing the exact same job I'm doing while you were there but it's just not fun anymore. And mm. I explained to him that I was coaching the staff members and treating them the same way that I run marathons and the same way that I coach people who run. Yeah. And he was going, well, it really did work. Uh, at that particular company, we delivered a $10 to $12 million project that was supposed to last 18 months for $2.6 million, and we did it in, in nine months. Uh, I did another project that was supposed to be a two-year international IT project. We completed that one in about 10 or 11 months. Mm. I was motivating and inspiring my staff the same way I was running marathons. Uh, One of that thing has to do with moving outside of your comfort zone. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what I did was a lot of managers, you know, when they would sit down and talk with their employees, they would talk to them about, okay, so, you know, so what are your goals here in the corporation? And a person would say, well, I want to get a degree, you know, I want to work on this project or that type of project. What I would talk with them about, I said, so, you know, what's on your bucket list? What do you want to do outside of the workplace? I said, tell me something exciting and thrilling.
3: Mm-hmm. And
1: they would say things like, well, you know, I always wanted to... Uh, To sail across the Atlantic or the Pacific, or you know, I've always wanted to, you know, learn how to ride, you know, learn how to do hot air balloons. I would encourage them to do all these things that were on their bucket list that they never ever thought about doing. Well, Mm -hmm. in doing those on their bucket list, they all ended up moving outside their comfort zone and they would expand their comfort zone. They would come into work every day with the same attitude that I had. My objective. I walked into work every day was to turn around and leave as quickly as possible, because <laughs> there, were, there were things more exciting that I was doing.
3: Yeah, I realized right.
1: that people who weren't pursuing their, their dream would come into work every day, and work was their life. These were the people that would take a 12-hour task and stretch it to 15 or 20 hours, because they didn't have anything to do outside of work. But people who had things they were pursuing came into work every single day with the objective of leaving as quickly as possible. So that's what I did was I found out what my staff was excited about doing but they had never done before and encouraged them to pursue those particular objectives and they came into work every day with the same attitude that I had. Hey, let's get this work done so I could go home and do this other thing. So we ended up having a lot of fun. I used to have staff meetings on Fridays but I had to change it because we spent so much time talking about all the exciting things we were going to do on, on the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> then, I, then I literally switched it to Monday, but we never got to talk about anything because everyone was zoom talking about all the exciting things that they actually did do over the weekend. Oh. So, to get into management by wandering around, so I would end up literally going around, sitting in everyone's cube, finding out what they were doing, and it worked out great. Yeah. Um, that's powerful of- because
2: yeah. I think that's, I think that's a really powerful thing. I, I'm, I'm actually excited to hi- highlight that for people because, um, that it relates to our message of, of going more and, and, in that we want people to, we wanted to, and it, I know it's, and it's funny, growing up, I, I was told in so many ways, in different ways from different people, mostly people that love me, but you know, The idea talking about dreams and having really big dreams and really big goals, um, was considered dangerous in a lot of ways and almost reckless in a lot of ways because of what it could do to people if things didn't work out. And, 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 and I think that that says that that's a little bit sad because, or quite sad because ultimately the thing that you're saying is what we believe at Go Be More. It's not about the, the thing Working out exactly the way you want is the pursuit of the thing. Being excited, feeling like you're living, and feeling like you're alive. Tony, I, I'm I'm uh, I applaud you for being able to do that as a manager in a work environment. Because pe- anybody that says business is not personal is, I'm sorry, uh, something's missing in your head. Of course, it's personal. It ties to your entire life. It takes up eight hours of your day, forty hours of your week. Plus any mental energy you think about stressing out about it when you're not there, get out of here. Of course, business is personal. So if you don't inject those types of things that you're talking about into your business, especially if you're a business owner or thinking about starting a business, I think you're making a big mistake. Yeah. You know, cause I think you're missing out on the most important element that makes your business successful. The people that are a part of it.
0: And John, there's something that, that Tony said that I think has actually changed a little bit. It kind of expanded the way I think about what we're doing. And and one of the things is we often are talking about chasing your dreams. And I think the assumption is that your work should be tied to it or that you should be doing a career or pursuing a path that is directly tied to your dreams. And I don't think that's necessary. I think the, mm-hmm. the dream can be, you work can be a means to an end. And it can be something that you in, you do because you enjoy it, but it's not your main priority in terms of your life, but it's the best opportunity for you to create the lifestyle you want. But it's really important to still have that thing that you're pursuing outside of your work. And if you do have it, it will actually, as Tony's saying, make you better at your work, right? Which is one of those uh, things that I think is not really communicated very much. It's one of the first times I've heard somebody say this and, and, and with evidence that it worked really well, and I'm thinking, man, that is such a, that is actually a really powerful idea. That I don't, I don't know. This is the first time I've heard it.
1: I found myself, uh, came, I guess, almost twenty or thirty years ago, kind of asking the one simple question: mm-hmm. of what did I want people to say at my funeral? What was going to be written in my obituary?
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Right.
1: And I realized that. You know, in my obituary, it wasn't going to be written. You know, that I was a vice president of this company or did that. It was all about everything that I did outside of work, the things that I truly loved doing. Uh, Tuesday was actually the first anniversary of my father passing away, mm-hmm. and it was interesting that at his funeral, no one talked about, you know, his his job. It was mm-hmm. all about everything he did outside of work. And once I came to that realization, work. Was not my number one priority. In fact, mm. the question uh, question I would frequently ask people is: So, if you if you were to die today, how many members of your staff would contact your spouse a year after you a year after your death to see how to see how they're doing? Mm-mm. And if none of them would, then you know you're, you're focused on the wrong thing as far as you know your priorities in life. Um,
2: I I saw I, I to that point to uh Tony Trevor Noah um is, uh, is such a phenomenal um person in 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 media in my opinion because he said something and I honestly truly believe that he lives and does everything a- according to this particular thing. He, ta- he talks about managing his staff. When he talks about his his position at the uh, Daily Show, when he inherited that position from um, John Stewart, is mm-hmm. I saying his name correctly? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, who I love. I love John Stewart, so I don't, I don't want to mess up his name, but... Trevor Noah said this amazing thing on this interview. I think it was like this little special dinner, uh, with a few other celebrities, uh, that was hosted by Chelsea Handler. And it was the most interesting thing because they talked about just relationships and what's important in life and all this really cool high level stuff. And he said, I think one of the most poignant things I've ever heard anybody say, uh, about, uh, what to, what to really do with and how to approach everything that you do in life. And he says, I approach life with this thing in mind always and this thing first. It's not about what I do. It's about how I make people feel. Yeah. Everything's about that. Everything That com- always comes first. And I feel like you do that, uh, Tony. I really do feel like you do that. I feel like, um, you know, that that's the greatest thing that you could do In your life is to look at not what you do, but how you make people feel. And that will in turn, I think, influence in a very positive way what you actually do and how you actually do it as well. Um, And I think that you'll have greater success in in, in everything that you do because of what you're getting out of everybody around you, including yourself, you know, And, and ultimately Treaty, the way you treat people is, is, is your legacy. Yeah. That's your legacy. So uh, again, it's, it's well, knowledge. You're dropping knowledge on this man. This is <laughs> Tony, well, said, really great.
0: You said this was, it seemed to me that it was connected to your approach to running and your, your personal life. Like this was, you came to work and you wanted to get out of work because you had other stuff you wanted to do. And, and running has been one of those driving forces. And it's, uh, is, is there a direct connection to this, this approach to managing people that you got from coaching or from, from the work you did with running groups and, and, or, and running in general?
1: Uh, yes, there is. In fact, um, I've just finished writing another book. Uh, this one is called From the Rat Race to the Road Race, Essays from a Black Executive Marathoner.
3: Mm-hmm. And
1: I tie all these different life experiences together to show people uh, – you know, how to overcome, you know, the fears and challenges that that they may have in life. Um, I kind of looked at what motivates people. Is it love or is it fear, for example? Mm -hmm. And I kind of argue that it's fear. It could be the fear of losing someone, you know, whom you may love. But for me, fear has always been a major motivator. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. When I was in high school, uh, in addition to doing the half and the and the quarter, I also did the long jump, long jump, triple jump, and believe it or not, even high jump. And wow. I can remember going to uh, Luther North High School, and the takeoff board for their long jump was 15 feet from the, from the beginning of the pit. At that time, my longest jump had only been around 14 feet. Oh. And I looked at this, <laughs> and I'm like scared to death. I saw a guy from the school go down, take a practice jump, stepped on the board, landed on the runway, and his momentum carried him forward into the pit. He literally did a forward roll into the pit.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And I was talking to my coach. I'm trying to come up with an excuse, you know, not to jump. And he goes, nope, got to jump. So I didn't take a practice jump. Uh, when I called my name, I went running down the, uh, went down the runway, took off landed in the pit, and I turned around, and I knew I stepped over the board. Yeah. White flag went up for a fair jump, and it was 18 feet. What? From that day <laughs> forth, literally from that day forth, I was jumping between 18 and 22 feet, and long jump. And wow. it wasn't because I loved it, it was because I was afraid of landing on the, on the runway. Mm-hmm. And I began to realize <laughs> The reason I did a lot of things in life was because I I had a fear. And I had to expand that comfort zone. But once I expanded it, I was able to live in it. So when I would be working with my staff or working with runners, for me, the whole thing has always been about finding out the thing that you're afraid of. And that thing that you're afraid of is the thing that's truly keeping you from doing the thing that you love. Mm -hmm. So you, you have to face that fear and expand your comfort zone. And that's the thing that I worked with my staff and with runners on doing.
2: That's Um, so cool. That's so cool. I, I would ask, I was asked the question, um, by, uh, it's funny, both, uh, world class, um, uh, Olympic athletes when I was living at the training center and also team members at UCLA, right when I kind of started to have my big breakthrough, uh, near the end of my career. And I, I, they would always ask me, how are you, succeeding? How are you, what did you, what clicked? What was, what did you figure out? And, um, I always, I, I started telling people this one answer and it was like one of those funny things. I just realized what was really holding me back. And I would always tell them, you know, the greatest obstacle that you're ever going to face, um, is yourself. You said, I, I was in the way. So I just got out of the way, you know, and I started embracing all the things that I was afraid of, you know, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, lactic acid is going to fill up my legs and I'm not going to be able to keep sprinting. And so I'm going to not be able to finish the workout. I said, well, how about I just get okay with not being able to finish the workout and do the best I can for as long as I can and just see what, see where that takes me. Eventually my lactic threshold became so high. I couldn't build up lactic acid anymore and I was able to run world-class times, but I had to go through the throwing up, not being able to finish workouts, passing out, laying on the track for a couple hours after workouts until my body just said, okay we're used to it now you can now you can go to the next level kind of a thing you know i passed the test of the fear of failing or, or not being able to do all these different things and um that description i think uh, of how you approach the long jump and and obviously translating that in and every other area of your life um that's i think i honestly think that's probably one of the most helpful pieces of advice that you can give to anybody is hurry up and fail already. Because <laughs> yeah. deal with the fear, deal with the thing you think you're afraid of, find out what it really is, not what you think it is, but what it really is, because it's never as bad as you think it is. And then you'll know how to deal with it better. You know, if it only lives in your head, that molehill will remain as Mount Everest, even though it's really just the molehill, you know? And so you, you what you're saying is basically answer the questions that you have so that you really know what to do once you figure out the answers to those particular questions in your head, which are based around your fears. Um, super, super cool uh, approach to take. And honestly, I think it's probably one of the key things that everybody needs to do.
1: Yeah. So the odds the of finding a black marathoner is extremely rare. I know people yeah. talk about you know right. marathoners being you know just what, one one percent of the population. Mm-hmm. Uh, the odds of finding a black marathoner is way way less than one percent.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: I took that knowledge and used that to apply to passing the the CPA exam. Uh, mm-hmm. At the time right. I was studying, they said there were four hundred and fifty thousand CPAs in the country, and only twenty five hundred were black. So you're looking at about half a percent. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I studied for the exam, studied really hard, got 20%. Went back, studied even harder, took a practice exam again, I got 20%. What I realized was every time I went back back to study, I only studied the material that I already knew because when I tried to study the other things that I didn't know, it made me feel stupid.
3: Mm.
1: So I realized I had to let go of what I had already learned and get comfortable with Every single thing that I didn't know, yeah, no. and uh, ultimately I ended up passing a CPA exam, and then actually ended up teaching uh, college courses in everything I didn't like in accounting.
0: Oh my <laughs> gosh! <laughs> well, you were probably the right teacher then, because you're the you're gonna you're gonna teach it to say look. This is not fun, right? This is this is the stuff that I didn't like. But like, <laughs> this, is, this yeah. is how you can learn it and get out of here and go do what you want to do, right? Like it's <laughs>
1: yeah, and it, and again, it came back to this whole thing of stepping back, looking at the big picture, and drawing from the things I learned in distance running to apply that to accounting and things I learned from accounting and applying that to distance running.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. I love that that message and and the ability to sort of look at anything you're doing. I, I tell this to my students at a university I teach and I, and I say, it doesn't matter. You're, you're an engineer, you're studying chemistry, you're studying whatever you're studying that like, there are things in your major that you're learning that you can just take and apply to every other course that you're studying or that, or to every other club you're involved in or whatever. You can just take it and use it. And, And once you start thinking that way, all of a sudden, you become you have like a superpower within the groups that you're in yeah. because because now suddenly everyone's like, "Well, he always has a good idea, and the only thing you're doing is taking ideas from one part of your life and just plugging them into another right um, yeah. so i that's my advice I give to them, and it's I try to live by that with my with myself. I'm always looking like, well, have I done something like this before, but maybe not like like this problem. I've never done this specific thing before, but have i have I done something similar enough that I can take from that?" to, to make this easier. And, um, more often than not, I find it if I look hard enough.
1: Yes. So that's, um, I have this unique ability of being able to pick up computer languages very easily. Mm. And find not, my brother Curtis has the ability to pick up foreign languages very easily. So he, oh. lived in Africa, he lived in Africa for 18 years. And while he was over there, he learned to speak, uh, Arabic, French, Portuguese, and Swahili all fluently. That's amazing, and we we both took German in high school, so I don't know how much of German he remembers. Right, but yeah, it's stepping back, looking at the big picture, and just borrowing from multiple areas.
2: So, where does your brother live now? Just out of curiosity,
1: he lives in Vermont. Ah, and you know, I looked at and said, "So you you went from the darkest continent to the whitest state?" I just.
0: Oh my gosh! Tony, that's are funny. you okay to keep talking for a little bit? Are, are you? Oh yeah! This is great. Okay, yeah, cool. Can... So I I want to ask you about the creation of the National Black Marathoners Association. You you've already mentioned that there's very few black marathoners; they're hard to find. And uh, can you talk us through what led you to create this organization?
1: Uh, yes, I had been. I ran my first marathon in 1982. And because, again, of uh, diabetes, I made a lifetime goal of running the Dallas Marathon in December and the Cowtown Marathon in Fort Worth every February. And I figured training for those two kind of kept me in shape through the weight-gaining holiday period. Mm -hmm. So I just went years just running those two marathons and, in fact, had a goal of running 50 marathons in Texas. Uh, I was speaking at the Black Data Processing Conference. Uh, they were having it in Chicago. And my topic had to do with goal setting. And I happened to have mentioned I had run 47 marathons and I still had, you know, three more to go to reach this particular goal.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And bear in mind, while I was running those 47 marathons, the only other Black marathoners that I personally knew were the ones that I had trained.
3: Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. You're right. I was
1: That was just two people at that time (laughs) so after i finished the presentation uh charlotte simmons was in the was in the audience and she came up to me and pulled me aside with a bunch of other black marathoners and they said we've never met another black who's run as many marathons as you have Mm -hmm. and it it just never dawned on me that 47 marathons was a lot right and so uh, we ended up talking and uh kind of stayed in contact and he says, well, look, well, you know, when you get ready to run your 50th, let us know and we'll come up and join you. So Charlotte was the, um, she was affiliated with the South Fulton running partners, which was the nation's oldest black running club. And they're out of Atlanta.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So the race that I picked for my 50th one in Texas was a small marathon that had fewer than, I think that one had probably about 75 people in it. Uh, Charlotte brought her friends up from Atlanta, and every single one of us ended up running away with an age group or weight division trophy. (laughs) We were talking afterwards, saying it would be pretty cool, you know, if we would, you know, get together at a different race around the country, you know, once a year, and all just kind of pull as many black runners together as we could. Then uh, the next year, I ran a marathon in my hometown, the St. Louis Marathon. I'd never run it there before. And the marathon course literally went past the projects that I used to live in growing up, the Blue Mire projects. Wow. And I wasn't aware of that at the time. And as we turned and we started going down the street, uh, there were some black kids that were sitting on the curb that were watching the runners, and they decided to get on up and kind of run along with me. Yeah. And so I'm running along with them, and I'm talking, and I'm thinking to myself, wow, you know, I never realized that I was, was a role model for these kids. And I realized the importance of an education. And I thought, you know, it would be great if there was a group of African-Americans who could raise money and we could target African-American distance runners. Mm. So uh, in November of 2004, I remember calling up Charlotte because we had been emailing and talking on the phone and says, let's go ahead and do it. So um, we ended up organizing the National Black Marathoners Association as a nonprofit organization. Uh, our initial two objectives were to raise money to award to uh, black high school distance runners to go to college mm-hmm. and to gather once a year at a marathon, marathon around the U.S. to pull together as many black distance runners as we could. Mm. And we always pick a location where there is a marathon, half marathon, and five or ten k. Our um, even though we have marathoner in our name, over sixty percent of our members have never run a marathon and never plan to. Okay. Uh, then, um, like I said, so those were our two objectives. We've awarded now I think over fifty thousand dollars in college scholarships in two thousand twelve. I think it was two, 2012, I received uh, an email from Runner's World. They were trying to find this lady named Marilyn Bevins, and this is <laughs> a Amy Burford from Runner's World. He and I have been known each other for a number of years, and he said, hey, I thought she might be a part of your organization. So I uh, looked, checked our email, list. she wasn't a part of it. I'd never heard of the lady, so I Googled her name. And found out that she was had placed second in the 1977 Boston Marathon. Wow. So, the first thing I'm thinking is, why would Amby contact me about this lady who placed second at Boston? She, why in the world would she be a member of, of our organization?
3: Mm-hmm. Because, in
1: my mind, I'm thinking she's a white lady. Yeah. So, I digging and digging and I finally saw a video of a video recording after doing an interview and was shocked to find out she was African American. Wow. And so I went to our board and said, You know, have you guys uh, he never heard of this lady? And he said, No. Uh, then someone brought up a guy named Ted Corbett. And yep. bear in mind, I had been running distances if you go back to high school. So from 69 all the way till 2012. I'd never heard of Ted Corbett. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd read about a guy named Ted Corbett in a book, but they never said that he was black. Yeah. Mm. And once we once we learned about Ted Corbett, we're going, oh my goodness. You know, there are all these African-American distance runners out there that people just don't know anything about. They don't know about their accomplishments.
2: Like Reggie and, McAfee, you know? Yeah. You know, a, a, a sub men in Africa. I think he was the first, and it was like... Uh... this guy is a legend it's crazy i mean people like that you're right there are so many in our sport when i discovered ted corbett i was like this guy did so much for running in america and he's responsible in so many ways for what we have today when it comes to road racing the, the, the the running club scene all this stuff and i'm sitting there going oh my gosh
1: yeah, I've never heard guy, of this guy before. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're looking at the guy who founded the New York Roadrunners Club. Yeah. Uh, helped find the uh, RRCA. Yeah. Uh, when people talk about the New York City Marathon, they forgot that Ted Corbett is the one who came up with the idea of a 5 borough race. Wow. The
2: measurements, too, like the... the, 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 yeah. the uh, how we, how we measure for the road race, road races and stuff like that. He was, he was responsible for coming up with how we do that.
1: Yeah. It's so, amazing. So what we ended up doing, again, I went back to the board and said, you know, we, we got to do something, you know, we have to do something to recognize the accomplishments of African-American distance runners. So in 2013, we organized the uh, national black distance running hall of fame. Mm-hmm. And he was, to say Ted Corbett and Marilyn Bevins were the first two individuals that we inducted. Mm -hmm. And in fact, up until that time, the New York Road Runners Club had not inducted Ted Corbett into their Hall of Fame. It wasn't until we made our announcement that a couple of months later, they then decided they were going to induct Ted Corbett into their Hall of Fame. Mm
3: -hmm. Wow.
1: Um, And with the Hall of Fame, we recognize everyone from, uh, for the women from the 800 meters, for the men from the mile all the way up through the marathon, and of course, John Rankin was inducted <laughs> in the 2015 class of the yeah. National oh, yeah. Black Distance Running Hall of Fame.
2: Yes, sir, and I, I, it's one of the greatest highlights of my my uh, my running career. Honestly, you know that recognition it means uh, you know to have that type of recognition as a dis- African American distance runner. Um, it's it, it's amazing to how much how important that is. And what that means, and what that means going forward. Um, without it, I feel like something would be missing in terms of being able to, you know, I think, put into perspective what it means to have a, been able to achieve what I did achieve, and what that will mean to the future future generations. So you guys being able to being having the thoughtfulness and putting the work into creating it, um, it's a wonderful contribution that you guys have made. And, and his, for the rest of history, you know, it's going to make our sport so much better, uh, not only in the United States, but honestly, uh, globally, it's these types of things are a big deal. They have big, big ripple effects. So I'm honored to be a part of what you guys have created in that way, for sure.
1: Then, um. Uh- so that was the year the year that you were inducted. That we inducting brothers because we inducted, of course, Howie Kofleski and Meb
3: Kofleski. Yeah. Mm.
1: At our 2017 Hall of Fame, we inducted another set of brothers, Ron Gregory and Dick Gregory. Oh,
3: okay. Uh, a yeah. lot
1: of people didn't realize that. A lot of people didn't realize that Dick Gregory uh, was a collegiate uh, All-American in track and cross country. In fact, he was my role model growing up. He was from St. Louis, and a lot of St. Louisans knew about his learning background. Uh, he even led a walkout of the high schools in St. Louis, and that walkout forced the Missouri State Sports Organization to integrate high school sports in St. Louis. Dick Gregory wow. did that as a high school senior. And uh, his brother, Ron Gregory, was faster than Dick Gregory. Uh, Ron was, I think, about five years younger. Ron mm-hmm. held the national high school record in one mile. And uh, so we ended up inducting the both of them into the Hall of Fame together. Of course, he was also a high school collegian. Mm-hmm. And just to show you how small the world is, when Ron Gregory and I were talking, he asked me, he goes, so, uh, you know, tell me about yourself, I Are you know, you're from St. Louis. And I said, yeah, I went to uh, Clark Elementary School and Enright Middle School. He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm really familiar, familiar with those schools. He goes, I used to teach at Sol Day in high school. And when he said that, I said, wait a minute, do you know a lady named Jeanette Bede? He goes, oh, yeah, that was John Nelson's secretary. I said, yeah, that's my mother. <laughs> and he wow. looked. And I, said, and I said, by the way, I said, you're one of the reasons mm-hmm. that I got interested in cross-country. Because Old Van High School, was a, it was three stories tall, and they had a basement. And I vividly remember the cross-country runners running a lap around the basement, running up the stairs. So they went four stories up the stairs. They would run a lap around the third floor and take the stairs back down. That was my introduction to cross-country running. And wow. that was Ron Gregory coaching <laughs> those runners.
0: Wow. And
1: I remember my mother introduced me to him back in the 1960s when he left out of her office she goes oh yeah that's Dick Gregory's brother so that it was amazing. a truly small world.
0: yeah you have so many connections uh and and what you've done has has thread through so many different aspects of the sport um tony we we unfortunately we need to sort of start wrapping it up and, and i hope at some point we'll be able to continue the discussion and talk about a few other things i mean we uh, I, at least we covered the smell of the penguins. I'm, I'm really <laughs> glad we got to that one. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that was really, that was, that no, was really we have, the, so what, you, what we were,
2: what, what, what we wanted, man. That, that was
0: it. No, yeah. Yeah. That's what Penguins. We, yeah. No, I, I say that in kidding because I did not know what to expect from our conversation except, except that I knew you had such a, a, a an amazing life experience to this. So I hope at some point we can continue this. I want to ask you, you you mentioned being retired. I know you're still working, you're still running. When yes. for you, uh, when you hear the words Go Be More, sort of what does it mean to you? And do you have a sort of a Go Be More dream that you're pursuing at this point?
1: Yes. Well, when I think of Go Be More, I think about taking a risk. Mm. Uh, I think that there are a lot of times that we see opportunities out there, but we, we don't take the risk to actually pursue it. Uh, mm-hmm. So, for example, with me, uh, I know a lot of people love that the major marathons, I gravitate towards the smaller marathons uh, for a variety of reasons. One is that they're, they're a lot more scenic. I'm not looking at glass buildings. Yep. Uh, in fact, um, I am uh, very blessed to have had 10 top 50 finishes in marathons, and I've also run you know, about ten marathons with fifty or fewer people. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I still got all of the five fifty channels. Uh when I was looking at the Add the World Marathon Majors, that's something that a lot of people are interested in, but I like the smaller events. Uh, so last year I formed a company called Caribbean Endurance Sports Corporation. And we are the founders, the organizers of the Five Island Challenge. So the five-mile challenge consists of running uh, the Bermuda Marathon, Bahamas, Barbados, Cayman Islands, and the Reggae Marathon in Jamaica. Mm -hmm. So instead of finishing on a concrete street surrounded by multi-story buildings, you get a nice small marathon where you get to finish on a beautiful white sand beach. we also made it so that there's a half marathon option, so that way, if you drink, you know, too much rum the night before the race, <laughs> you, decide you want to come from a marathon to a half marathon, you know, you, you have that option, and so you can either run, you know, marathons on all five islands, half marathons, or right. a combination. So it's going to be more laid back, more comfortable, and I think a lot better parties.
3: Hey, that's right. I love right.
0: this idea. I love the idea of of the idea that the small marathons is in general are something you can get more out of than the big major big ones, and I love that you saw a need, not just a need, but a way to turn this concept of go do a a smaller exotic marathon and but let's let's turn it into something a little bit bigger, a challenge, get out of your comfort zone. Let, let's let's do all five of them and then and and um I would love to see this grow and, and, uh, and if there's any way we can play a role in, in promoting them. I'm, right now, probably it's a little difficult with the pandemic, but we would love to play a role with you in, in supporting this. I think that's a fantastic venture.
1: And the, the beauty about it is it is a lot mm-hmm. more economical than yeah. under the world majors. Right. Uh, Absolutely. So that's the other thing. We, we wanted to open this up to people that are more economically challenged. Yeah. Um, you know, when, when I look at, for example, my budget, people may not be able to fly to Tokyo or London or Berlin, mm-hmm. but a lot of people can hop on a plane and go down to Jamaica any day. Sure. Oh, yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Especially compared to, comparatively speaking to those other uh, other major marathons. You're absolutely right, you know. And I think it's I think it's a great yeah. experience. Ultimately, um, you know, running is, is a lifestyle. And I think that when you look at... Um, The five island challenge it's about enjoying yourself man it's not just about trying to finish a marathon and say that you did it that's a big part of it yes but the other part of it is the way you live your life and what you're getting out of your your life and and i think that that's it's a that the the five island challenge is kind of like i feel like a reflection of enjoying the journey you know and and, and and honestly being able to enjoy the scenery along the way, and and this is a really cool uh, uh, li- literal experience, you know, like you're actually getting to get out there and see beautiful things and be experienced. I mean, I'm from the Cayman Islands; that's where, who, where I'm from, and so mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I, fact, I'm excited to be a part of this. You're know? you
1: a of the Cayman Islands,
2: yeah. I, I, well, I, you <laughs> know I, It's so funny. I forget that all the time, but it's it's actually pretty cool to be from the Cayman Islands and to have actually won the Cayman Islands Marathon and and to Uh, I've done a, I've done a lot of really cool things running wise connected to the, to, to where my family's from, where I'm from. And, uh, this is a wonderful thing that you're doing that, that the Cayman Islands is included in. And I'm excited to be, like Brian said, as a company and individually as well, just to be supporting, uh, this great thing that you, that you've put together and, and that, you know, uh, pandemic, uh, willing, uh, you know, uh, being able to see this thing really, uh, take off because I I can't see it not being successful and, and people falling in love with it.
1: Like, go be more is all about taking those risks. Yes, sir. You know, you, I love you, that. You don't, Thank you. You don't want to sit there a year later and say you know I wish I had done. Yeah. This. You know you, you have to go after
2: it. I I got tired of people saying well I I I could I could do this or I I thought I could do this and I'm like you can go be more so do it.
3: <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah, Tony. We are. Um, I'm going to put links in our in the podcast notes, and and we'll send out a newsletter for our subscribers at, uh, for this that that has links to the National Black Marathon Association, and and to will I want to reach out with you to get links to your books to make sure that people can know where to find them and and how to get those. Um, okay. If there's, is there anywhere that are you on social media? Is there anywhere so, people should should follow you or do anything along those lines?
1: Um, we have uh, the the Five Island Challenge. We have a Facebook page. Okay. And uh, yeah, we're also out on. Um, oh, I'm drawing a blank now. Uh, Instagram. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Yes. we will link all that stuff up so people can find it just by looking at the okay. notes and our stuff and, and we'll try to just spread the word about those Tony thank you so much for joining and sharing some like a small part of your story and at some point let's come back on and, and we'll fill in all the gaps on that we uh, that we didn't get to cover on this one
1: okay it'll be yeah it'll be great it'll be a lot of fun yes
2: sir thank you again Tony it's always a pleasure to see you and um, you know there's there, there is so much more to talk about and uh, without a doubt, we do need to bring you back.
0: All right.
1: Okay, I love it. I look forward to it.
0: Hey everybody. If you enjoyed that conversation and you want to send us feedback directly, my email is brian at gobemore.co. If you enjoy the pod in general, the easiest way to help us is to tell a friend, whether it's this episode or a past favorite, share it with someone and help them to go be more inspired. At go be More we know that our clothes can reinforce our commitment to be who we aspire to be. So stop by our shop and start wearing your commitment to chase your dreams today. For all of us at More, we are what the world is chasing, and we hope this podcast helps you become what the world is chasing too.